Okay, two or three things from the environment file we want to discuss this afternoon. And we're going to start with the uh, UN, who said yesterday that the political will to fight climate change seems to be fading at the same time as things are getting worse and we're feeling the effects more and more. As a matter of fact, I was just reading an article uh, last night with some interest, uh, the Mexico uh, coastal line there, that uh, they're really battling those beautiful beaches in uh, Tulum and up uh, the coast on that side, are battling uh, sargasm. Are you familiar with this? It's almost like a a seaweed, but it's all washing on shore now. It's uh, spoiling the uh, beaches because they've got to try to move this stuff out, get it out, and it smells kind of like rotten eggs. And they're saying that this is due to uh, higher bacteria levels, I believe, uh, in the water and climate change. The combination of the two has seen a real uh, proliferation and a growth of this uh, sargasm, which is uh, really ruining some of the world's most beautiful beaches. Anyways, the U.N. says the world is not set to meet objectives to limit global temperature increases to one and a half percent. And the countries are not living up to their commitments under the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement. For more on this, let's uh, welcome in Ross McKittrick. He is a Fraser Institute Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics at the University of Guelph. And he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Ross, good afternoon and thanks so much for the time. Hi, Jeff. No problem. Uh, first off here, uh, just uh, why is this going on? Why is this occurring? Is it uh, because uh, these countries that, uh, you know, it's not worth the paper they signed this agreement on, that they uh, kind of left Paris about three years ago now with no real commitment to making this happen? Well, what we're seeing is a very predictable replay of exactly what happened with the Kyoto Protocol back uh, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, countries signed onto it, made big emission reduction pledges, without necessarily realizing that carbon dioxide emissions are very difficult to reduce on a large scale because they're very closely tied to energy consumption. And if you have growing populations and growing GDP, um, you can't just automatically cut your energy consumption by a large amount without imposing a huge amount of hardship. So. Uh, The countries that have made these commitments are realizing that uh, they don't actually have credible policy commitments to achieve them, and um, so they're likely to just quietly abandon their pledges. It's already happening in practice. They haven't yet uh, come to the point where they admit that that's what they're doing, but um, it is, like I say, it's exactly what happened with the Kyoto Protocol. 20 years ago, and it's inevitable that it will happen with the Paris Agreement as well. Do you think the goals were just too ambitious? They were impossible to reach? Well, uh, in a sense, yes. The um, uh, We have a lot of experience with reducing pollution emissions, uh, things like particulates and sulfur dioxide and NOx, which are the, the local air contaminants that, that um, you can see on smoggy days. Um, those are actually fairly inexpensive to reduce. Like we have the technology that you can decouple economic growth and energy consumption from those emissions. So we have a good track record, especially Canada, the U.S., and Europe, of cutting those emissions substantially. But there's no technology that can decouple the energy system from carbon dioxide emissions on a large scale at a low cost. And I think um, the... Uh, uh, Kyoto it was sort of understandable in that in that time that politicians could make those commitments <clears throat> without realizing the technological difficulties they were up against. I don't really understand why they just went back and did exactly the same thing and uh, put themselves on a track for, like I say, a very predictable failure. 
Yeah, and uh, is part of the problem here as well that the Paris Climate Agreement, that there's no teeth to it? I mean, is there any penalty, any punishment whatsoever for any of these member countries that signed on and didn't live up to their pledge? No, it is ultimately a voluntary agreement. The, uh, we have every country files what are called nationally determined contributions or NDCs where you indicate what it is you're going to do. But if you can't follow your pledge, nobody's going to throw you in jail and uh, you could just go and revise your NDC. And so it is ultimately a, a voluntary agreement. And it, it in a sense has to be because there's no global policeman who's going to come and arrest all Canadians because we're out of compliance with the Paris Treaty. All right. Meantime, the situation seems to be getting more and more urgent uh, for the first time. Also, I'm making news today for the first time in human history, not recorded history, but human history, since humans have been here on this earth. Carbon dioxide, you just mentioned this in the atmosphere, it's topped uh, 415 parts per million. That is the the biggest, uh, as I mentioned, in human history. Just how concerning is that? Well, it's definitely a concern. It's it's on a steady upward trajectory. Um, now, you mentioned human history. Uh, if you go back on the geological time scale, uh, we're still at a fairly low point. That, um, most of the plants and animals that we see evolved under conditions where CO2 was over 1,000 parts per million and, and even over two or 3,000 parts per million. That's the typical level over long intervals of the Earth's history. But um, in the current um, interval of, say, the last 100,000 years, um, the CO2 level has apparently been pretty low. And then especially over the past uh, 10,000 years, it's typically estimated at about 280 parts per million. The increase that we're seeing, uh, therefore, is uh, fairly rapid, and it's tied to uh, carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuel use. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely an issue that um, we need to try to understand the implications of it. Um, is the trend concerning, and when we talk about fossil fuel usage, is there time, or is it time to maybe crack down on uh, businesses and those that are offenders? Well, uh, everybody's the offender here. Um Thinking about it in the economics framework, the reason we use fossil fuels is because it's an inexpensive and reliable form of energy. And we have benefited uh, tremendously over the past hundred years from having access to this form of energy. So if you think about things like global poverty, which um, 20 or 30 years ago, um, we were looking at terrible numbers of over half the world living in extreme poverty. And um, and now those numbers are much smaller. Below 10% of the world is living in extreme poverty. And, and um, the reason countries like China and Southeast Asia and much of Africa is developing as rapidly as it is, is they have access to inexpensive fossil fuel-powered electricity, finally. Uh, the reason that uh, North America and Europe is as wealthy as it is, uh, that we're as wealthy as we are, is that we have access to fossil energy. So... Um, we don't. We can't just look at the CO2 concentration and say, well, let's just dial it back down to 300 parts per million. Even if we decided we wanted to, uh, we'd have to be prepared to give up a whole lot of what comprises our standard of living. And I don't think we'd be better off as a result of doing that. 
All right. Uh, finally, uh, Britain, they've announced that they went a, a whole week, uh, Ross, a whole week without coal power for the first time since uh, 1882. So since the uh, late 19th century, they go an entire week without coal-generated electricity. Uh, just how much of a landmark uh, is this? Well, I find it very underwhelming, actually, because they have spent an enormous amount of money on wind and solar power. And um, through much of the past few years, including most of this past winter, they got no electricity, or at least only a trickle from the renewables part of the grid. What they've done is they've been able to um, transfer over to some nuclear and natural gas power plants. They're still not getting a lot of electricity from the renewable sector. It's very similar to what's happened in Ontario. I mean, we've gone now for um, about two years without any coal-fired power, but it was a very expensive transition, and we didn't replace coal with wind and solar. We replaced coal with nuclear and gas. So it's it's doable. Um, the uh, The issue really is, could they have achieved the same environmental benefits at a lower cost using more conventional strategies than, than trying to invest so heavily in renewables? And, and I think that, yes, they could have, as could Ontario have. So... By and large, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm underwhelmed just because the amount that they have spent on this electricity transition, and in the end, what they can say is, for one week, they. Uh, okay, but with any newer developing plan. technology, isn't there some upfront costs and research and development uh, and implementation that that's got to be done? And over the long haul, is this still not uh, the wave and the the move to the future when we look at particularly the environmental benefit? Well, on the environmental benefits, um, if it's conventional air pollution, um, things like coal plants, natural gas plants, you can put scrubbers on the smokestacks that get rid of most of those contaminants. The CO2 emissions are different, and that's where if you switch from coal to natural gas, that's where you get most of the the benefit. The remainder you could get through uh, offsets, um, including Britain has access to the European emission trading system, so um, their costs should be fairly low. The um, experience, though, in Europe and North America is that renewables like wind and solar, um, because of the intermittency problem, that you still need electricity when it's night, when there's no sun, and when the wind isn't blowing. And that requires large-scale storage. And um, so far, there isn't a technological solution um, on any affordable scale for that. All right, we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, Ross, really appreciate the time and your expertise. Uh, Thanks so much uh, for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. There goes Ross McKittrick, Fraser Institute Senior Fellow, Professor of Economics at the University of Guelph.